Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Well, Glenn, let's jump right into the little anagram uh, game that uh, we're going to be doing this year. And my, uh, my challenge to everyone listening tonight is linen rationing. I'll scramble that to be something at least partially related to, uh, to the fingerprint world. That's L-I-N-E-N, linen, and then rationing, R-A-T-I-O-N-I-N-G. Try not to think too hard about it, Glenn, and we'll get your answer at the, the end of the episode uh, if you can unscramble those letters. Sure thing. And How you I'm, doing? I'm doing okay. I'm, it's, it's been a crazy couple of weeks, and I think I've been saying – it feels like I've been saying that every time we record. <laughs> it just keeps no, getting crazier. True. But – uh, um, let me say thanks real quick to a new patron, a patron that we have through patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Uh, and that's a big thanks to Stacy. Uh, thank you, Stacy, yeah. for joining our little club here and, uh, contributing, uh, you know, a couple bucks uh, every month to, uh, to us keeping going. Um, Glenn, congratulations. We've, we are into our eighth year doing this. Wow. That, uh, that is a milestone, man. Who would have thought from a from a little idea we had there in Arizona? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, man. I I could not imagine going back seven years um, when we first, you know, just plopped my little you know spheroid microphone uh, in front of some people at the conference in well, wherever we were that year, uh, but. Um, uh, in back in 2013, I guess that would be. Uh, yeah, that we'd still be going all these years later. Uh, and, and you know, it's thanks to to all your listeners out there, uh, and uh, also to our patrons uh, on Patreon that uh, that help us you know, keep this going. Because you know what, if there wasn't people actually listening to this, I think we would have stopped a while ago. So I have returned to California for uh, our, a back to work schedule of a, a week on and a week off. Uh, and not have, without incident. Exactly. I, you already have heard, but I was going to tell the audience here a little, a little story. Um, uh, so let's see. It wasn't the first week back. It was the second week back, uh, driving uh, across the uh, the long stretches uh, of desert between Phoenix and L.A. Um, specifically at about the halfway point between Blythe and Indio, uh, which. Since most of you have never heard of either of those places, kind of gives you an idea as to how far out in the middle of nowhere I was. A a um, a desert creature, I may probably a coyote, uh, decided it was a good idea to to jump in front of my you know fifteen year old Corolla and uh, did a pretty good number on it. Uh, took out the the radiator and the fan assembly and the AC unit and even cracked the oil pan. Um, I mean, I don't yeah, think that, I, that's crazy. I mean, that's, that, that's a ton of damage. I, I don't think a guided missile could have done more damage. Uh, I actually still think he hit a werewolf, but that's, that's just me. <laughs> well, right. Just, uh, uh, and not just any werewolf, but, but a, a werewolf out of a bad, um, uh, a bad movie that has some sort of, you know, Native American curse upon it, right? 
Correct, right. You hit some sort of spirit totem, werewolf, skinwalker, by day kind of creature, and now you shall be cursed by the Anastasi tribes of <laughs> southwestern United States. I, I think that's how that goes, right? Well, if if we were if if we were in a bad movie, um, and uh, I guess there's no way to prove that we're not, uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, then then yeah, that sounds like the exact setup to uh, to that story. Yeah. Um, but yeah, after boy, three four hours waiting for a tow truck in the middle of the well, at least the sun had gone down, but you know, still hundred degrees. You know, finally made it into t- into a hotel and got a rental and i guess the the good out of it is um uh had to had that car was too expensive to repair versus what it was worth so uh just got the the value of it against a new car so i'm in a well not brand new but a newer uh civic so it's nice enough huh? it's uh, you silver know, it's lining a, and it's it's a well, it's a dark gray, more of a c- color to the car, but um, you know I guess you could call it silver. <laughs> yeah, silver silver lining, silver lining car. Oh, okay, yeah, 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 exactly. Um, yeah, but it's nice. Uh, so now I'm back in uh, California for my now third week back, uh, working in the office, and uh, so far no incidents with additional coyotes. So um, maybe, maybe the curse has passed me by. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe we'll see. We'll see. We'll have to wait till the first full moon, man. Oh boy, I gotta check. <laughs> I haven't looked at a calendar to see when that would be, um, or maybe all these fires in California are, are, are a result of that. I have to check the timeline there for that one uh, with all the red skies that have been coming in too. <laughs> so, um, uh, also though, uh, to, uh, participating in the Idemia Users Conference uh, this week. Uh, so it's been uh, so far first day down, uh, but, uh, it's definitely been an interesting experience so far. You know, again, everyone kind of echoes the same sentiment, you know, wish that, uh, we were in person, that we could, you know, that interaction in the hallways in between, uh, presentations, uh, the happy hour. It was funny after all the courses or, or all the, uh, presentations wrapped up here today, uh, we, we tried to host a virtual happy hour. There's still, you know, hundred plus people on the call and thought, well, let's, let's just see if we can just, everyone is, is basically, you know, muted by force. Like the, the people organizing it have, you know, everyone, everyone on mute because with that many people, it's, it's impossible to keep everything straight. Right. But there's all right, here we go. Let's, let's give people control then of their muting and, uh, basically just simultaneously unmuted a hundred plus people. <laughs> wow and uh, it was just noise for Very chaos. for about 60 seconds um and then everyone muted again and then we was like okay let's then just have you know to kind of talk to each other uh in a group you know just raise your hand and we'll unmute you in particular uh and we did that for a little bit but it's it's essentially you know a large group of people in a conference room no one can say anything to anyone unless you come up to the front of the of the room and talk into the microphone. And it's yeah. not really a great way to gossip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's that's definitely I think a challenge is 
you know, the, the actual presentations, people have kind of figured that out. Uh, and, you know, we can take questions and get those answered. And, and that part kind of feels like a transfer of information, like a normal conference. But it's that, it's that more of that social interaction that I think, uh, you know, here going forward that conferences will have to, to figure a way to facilitate that a little bit better to, um, uh, yeah. In, until this all gets wrapped up and and taken care of. Yep. Well, yeah, I, I I understand those sentiments. I actually had a live training last week or the week before, for the first one since all this began. It was my you know first in person training. It had been a while, but I'd forgotten how much I missed it. There really is so much value to being there in person, interacting with your audience, and. It was the first time I had done magic in six months for a live person. I'd been oh, yeah. practicing a few new tricks, but you know, it was nice to get back to doing magic in front of people. But, so, yeah, it was weird. Wait, so you not you said in front of a live person? Like, you don't practice on your on your boys at all? Show them what you're oh, working on? No, it's, it's not the same. I might show them once, but it's not like I can keep showing them. You know, I'm once I get to the point where I think I can pull it off, I might show them or practice you know but it's not the same <laughs> as an audience with different angles and everyone watching different things and you know it's, it's very got it. different got it okay they don't they don't count right, right. exactly <laughs> they don't count That's exactly uh, right boy okay uh so i had something for you yeah uh, we got an email. Now, in our last episode, which was on the Knuckle Crease case, but oh boy. <laughs> that is that, that's actually just dropping today, so people haven't listened to it. We gave a shout-out to Kurt in Switzerland. And oh, right. so, you're right. And, uh, you know, uh, we were pretty impressed that a German speaker was, you know, native speaker was, you know, listening to our podcast. But unbeknownst to this listener, we had another listener from Switzerland who's also a German speaker. Her name is Ruth. So a shout out for Ruth. Uh, she sent me a couple of messages. First of all, she teased me and said it was funny how I pronounced the Tsi and Vithun book, which I oh. uh, was on a, <laughs> in our books episode or class yeah, book yeah. episode. Right. So the title of that book is Popular Leistenstruktur der Menschlichen Handenfläche, which, you know, is Ridge structures in in hands, you know, hand, palm, and palm prints. Well, and I think I even like you know commended you on on the pronunciation because I'm hell I don't know better. Uh, but uh, <laughs> so to, to a to, native speaker, right. uh, not as impressed. Uh, but she got a, <laughs> she got a chuckle out of it. So I thought I would massacre her language even more this week because she sent me a list and said, yeah, it's kind of funny because, you know, like one of those words in there is – well, actually several of those words are fairly long in that. I mean you've got the Papular Leichtenstruktor, which is all one one word, and then Händenfläche, which is another word. And so German language is known for ridiculous what are called compound words. Right. Which, when combined together, you actually get some of the longest words in any language. So she sent me a list of the top ten longest German oh, words. No. So, so so if you're if you're not catching on here, it's like you know an English firehouse or everywhere. You know, it's a com- it's two other words combined together. But in English, we tend to kind of cut it off at a certain point. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, oh boy, here we go. 
Yep. So I'm going to I'm going to read for you the two biggest ones. But what I was actually kind of impressed about was on this list, two of the top 10 are forensic science or terms you could find in forensic science. So what I thought we'd do a little a little game of any idea what that word might mean in German. (laughs) Okay. All right, ready? All right, so she said, and this is one I'd heard from many German speakers. She said, so the longest German word, and I'm going to take my best attempt at this, and I think it's like 63 characters. Reinfleischetiketierlingung über Weckungsaufgaben Übertragungsgesetz. So that's what they said was the longest German word. And Reinfleisch is sort of the key word in there. That if, if you know any German, Reinfleisch, Fleisch, Flesh. So it's basically uh, cattle marking and beef labeling laws. So it's like the oh. USDA. It's like their equivalent of the USDA, you know, how you grade meat and have certain laws regarding how meat, you know, the grading of meat and the, the, the super, only ones that, supervisory laws. The only ones that stood out for me in there were, I think I heard Ubergarten. Ubervakun. Aufgaben. Ubertragung Gazettes. And bless you. Uh, yes. So, <laughs> so gazettes is is law. So that's that's kind of um, a, a clue word. So the Rheinfleisch gazettes. When you hear those two things, basically beef. It sounds like beef something laws, and that's exactly what it is. Beef okay. laws. Okay. So there you go. But that's actually not the longest German word. Most German speakers seem to think it is, but I guess there's a new one, and it is. Grundstück Verkehrsgenehmigungs Zuständigkeitsübertragung Verordnung. So Grundstück is sort of the keyword there, Verordnung, which is ordinance or again laws or rules. A lot of laws and rules in Germany. One word. Um, but it, yeah, all one word. That was all one word. I uh, know. Yeah, you got me stumped on that one too. Yeah, it's it's real estate laws, basically. It's the transfer of um, ownership and responsibility through real estate laws, effectively, I, I think. Uh, Ruth is free to correct me if she wishes to, or Kurt. They can either either one. <laughs> I, I, I want to say that if I saw it written down, I might have a better chance of it. But, but I, Oh, I, for sure. But, but for you sure. know what? Maybe that's just me <laughs> thinking better of myself. Now, I'll have to send it to you because it's 69 letters long, Ooh. and it's one word. It's amazing. It fills up the entire page. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> All right, so here so, are what's one of the, the top, forensic ones. Yeah, so here are the two in the top ten. Now, this first one you probably will get, and I'll I'll soften it a little bit so that I, I think you'll you'll get it. Okay. List. All right. Restriction, fragment, langenen, polymorphismus. Restriction, uh, fragment, langen, oh, um, polymorphismus. Uh, rest, uh, DNA yep. restrictive enzyme polymorph. Uh, yep. <laughs> uh, RFLP. Yeah, there we go. Yep. Um, uh, re- restriction, fragment, length, polymorphisms. Do they? Do they? You think they abbreviate it down to? Uh, RFLP as well, or something similar to that. So, yeah, I actually checked with. I mean, it actually does. Um, it does actually translate perfectly to the same acronym. So I okay. checked. I I mentioned RFLP, and she said yes, that, that was one of them. And then the other one, which is a little going to be a little harder, but see if there's a couple words that might ring a bell to you. Sure. 
Alright, here we go. Hochleistung Flusskeitschromatography. So, Hoch, you know what Hoch is in German? Hi. Okay. Leistung Fluss. So, Fluss. Fluss. Uh, Flussig. Uh, like high pressure liquid chromatography? That's, uh, there you go, sir. Very good. Okay. Well done. Flussigkeit. <laughs> The uh, the high at the beginning definitely helped out because I'd heard the photography at the end. I was like, okay, <laughs> what what mm-hmm. photography? Uh, you know, but no, okay, kind of proud of so myself. I thought that was cool. Yeah, that, uh, in the top ten, in the top ten longest German words, two of them were had a relation to forensic science. Well, that then um, reminds me of I think I gave you this fact here a few weeks ago, but not on the show. Uh, the 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 specialness of the word dermatoglyphics. Uh, d- was this you that I was talking to about that? Uh, it's not ringing the bell, so keep going. Okay. Uh, the, the word, just the word dermatoglyphics. It's actually a, a, a pretty unique word, um, in the, uh, in the English language. It might help oh. if you typed it out. No, you did tell me this. Okay. Yep. Yep. Uh, yep. It's it, and I think there's one other word that's the same length, uh, but the two of them are the, the longest words in the English language that never repeats a letter. Uh, so, dramatoglyphics, yeah. every letter in it is a different letter. Uh, yeah, that's so, really cool, and I never yeah. would have guessed that. So, you know, again, back related to, uh, to forensics. Yep, there we go. Well, um, let's get to the main topic today. I guess yes. um, we've had a couple of fairly sad weeks here, so we're doing kind of an in-memoriam episode. Want to walk us through a little bit here? Yeah, so, um, you know, Glenn and I, you know, we each uh, received, uh, and I'm, I'm sure many of uh, the listeners out there also received word uh, here recently, uh, that a, a former president of the IAI has uh, recently passed. Uh, and that was a uh, Bob Garrett, and uh, you know Bob was, you know, a pretty great figure uh, in the IAI, especially over the past uh, twenty years. And and um, we thought that uh, we talk a little bit today uh, about uh, some of the work that he was involved with um, uh, in his time, especially with the IAI. Uh, but uh, in just in you know after hearing that news. We, kind of, we, we thought we'd also kind of expand it out uh, because of, of a few other people uh, that we know that have also recently passed. Um, yes. So uh, one is um, Pete Salico. Uh, he was uh, an examiner out of Texas uh, who I had the pleasure of working with for uh, the nine months or so that I was with um, Ideal Innovations. Yeah, Pete was a Texas guy and uh, you worked for a number of years um, uh, in Texas. Yeah, came up as uh, an officer and then um, before getting into uh, into fingerprints and latent print comparisons. And um, if the name sounds familiar at all, it may be because of the uh, the brushes he used to make. Uh, right. So uh, he would hand handcraft uh, fingerprint brushes. You know, not this kind of disposable brushes that, that uh, uh, you know, many people, um, you know, are using nowadays, but, uh, you know, a, a good quality, uh, brush to you know, stand up to time. And, um, 
so yeah, I, I I never worked with him, um, and I maybe met him once a long time ago. I would see him occasionally at conferences, but I think I mostly knew him through br- his about his brush. And then seeing his uh, adverts on probably LinkedIn or so, yeah, maybe Facebook, yeah. but LinkedIn. I think I'd see them all the time. They'd pop up in my feed, and uh, he just seemed to have a real passion for fingerprints. And he really did. Everyone that everyone that I've talked to about him just said oh, he was the greatest guy, had the biggest heart, and you know, just uh, you know, um, you know, just yeah. one of those tra- tragedies. And um, my understanding was he passed away from a heart attack or a heart heart issue. Uh, something like that is, is what I heard as well. Um, yeah. And, and and an incredible musician. Um, <laughs> that I didn't know until you guys told me about that. Yeah. he. We When we were working uh, at I3, we'd often just go on to these, these just spinning um, discussions on, on music from, uh, you know, great bands from back in the seventies and, and, uh, uh, we're talking about uh, guitars and and <laughs> never had the opportunity to play with him because uh, I you know, didn't have my guitar out in West Virginia. But um, but uh, and I would have barely been able to keep up with uh, <laughs> with hmm. his talent. But it was uh, great talking with him about that. Um, yeah. The uh, his uh, obituary does mention that. Uh, so if you knew uh, Pete, that. Um, you know, donations can be made to the Texas division of the IAI via the uh, Charles Parker Memorial Scholarship. Um, another great guy passed away <laughs> exactly. before his time. Uh, so then um, another examiner uh, who, unless you're uh, from Arizona, you, you may not be um, familiar with, uh, that also recently passed is uh, Julie Christofferson. And uh, she worked for uh, Tucson PD and for Pima County, Arizona, for years and years, um, great examiner, you know, real quiet uh, person, but um, you know, also very sad to hear of her passing as well. Yeah, I didn't know her, but it's it, it's it's just crazy. The last couple of weeks, how many how many great people have been lost? I'm just in our field, but you know, obviously you know, in this country and around the world. Uh, I recently also uh, had a friend pass away, and um, uh, this is Michael Taylor. We mentioned him on a couple of episodes back when we were talking about the Cam case, uh, the David yeah. Cam case out of Indiana, and we were talking about Bart Epstein, and, and we had mentioned that there is this MFRC, Midwest Forensic Science Resource Center, uh, website that had all these uh, high-speed blood videos, bloodstain pattern videos, and that have all been work that had been uh, done through grant work through New Zealand, uh, which was where Michael uh, Taylor was from, and he was this bloodstain expert, an incredible instructor, had so many students, just loved by so many, kind, gentle, always just so patient. His students were just absolutely devastated because, you know, he had encouraged so many, you know, he just had that kind of nature to him where he was curious about everything. He had kind of like a Tom Busey personality where he was fascinated by everything <laughs> and at, at just absolutely curious. And, and I love that about him. And he was really making some pretty strong progress in his field of trying to bring this uh, proposition Lazan approach to bloodstain pattern analysis where you focus on 
more about the effects that you observe and if you can classify the stains and then attempt to um, determine the probability to observe them under different conditions rather than, oh, I think it might have been this mechanism. Now let's test this mechanism. It was more about what are the stains here? What can we eliminate? And kind of working backwards from effect to cause, which is the proper way to do it, as opposed to, you know, showing up a scene and the, the local cops go, yeah, we think it's a suicide. Let's, 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 let's explore the suicide part as opposed to let's see what we have here first. Then we can figure out what scenarios make sense or don't make sense, you know, leaving everything on the table. So it, it's just, um, it's a real shame. And I know that field uh, will experience a real loss with, uh, without him. And, uh, it was sad. He had, uh, beaten, well, he had at least, um, sent brain cancer into remission about five or six years ago and it sounds like it came back with a vengeance and the only silver lining here is that passed quickly yeah um very sad and and like you said especially with the the progress that he was so instrumental um in making and um you only hope that that one of his students kind of picks up that mantle and and continues to carry it forward well, one of his students, if you might recall, is the Nikki Osborne that we've had on yes. the show before. So, yeah, Nikki was actually one of his students, and I know she it was particularly difficult. But uh, anyway, she uh, uh, she said that she, of course, does plan to carry on that legacy. Absolutely, absolutely. So, with you know these these four people uh, that we uh, that we knew uh, passing here in the past month or so. We thought we'd uh, do a, like you're saying, a, a memorial episode uh, to them, um, but um, you know, by by taking a look back at uh, specifically Bob Garrett's work uh, and and his career, and um, especially some of the work that he did in his year as the president of the IAI, uh, yeah. which involves some pretty big steps forward, uh, important uh, steps forward uh, for our field. Yeah, I, I feel like more happened on his watch than any presidency. And he he's not one to sit on the sidelines and go, well, let's just wait and see how this pans out. He yeah. was so proactive. He would, he, he would make a decision. He had a viewpoint. He was never sort of politicky. Well, I'm not sure we should really. And he, he was like, let's, here's, here's the call. Let's do something about this. He, he was very proactive on every issue that came up during his presidency. And it's rare that you see that kind of, um, engagement and motivation to make change right away i mean he he had no problem with upsetting the apple cart so uh why don't you can you take us through let's just sure. you know briefly uh initially a little bit of bob's career and yeah. uh and where where he worked uh, yep. in the years leading up to to all this involvement that we're going to talk about later on Right. So a lot of this actually I, I took from uh, Bob's own website. So when I, I, when I first met Bob myself was probably around 2004 when I joined Swigfast. I think I had seen him around the IAI, but I don't think I actually met him until maybe 2004. And just personally, I can say that I would always, when I would, you know, kind of enter a room and kind of see who's there. And if I saw Bob anywhere near the bar or having a drink, which was fairly often, uh, I would make sure I went over and said hi to him and hung out for a little bit because I could guarantee he would always make me laugh. He had such a fantastic sense of humor. So he's from Jersey, and I like that Jersey sense of humor. Jersey, <laughs> Philly, 
that in even New York, that whole New York, Jersey, Philly, that whole area I, has just such a great sense of humor, sarcastic, dry, witty, sharp, all just so fast with a retort that would just leave you laughing. And there would just be these moments where, oh, my God, he didn't just say that. That's amazing. <laughs> And you know, and I just I I, I kind of love that he he just knew how to throw the punchline in and there was just nothing funnier that could be said after he just would drop something and walk away so I I love that about him but his uh, his early career uh, was he was actually law enforcement he he was himself a cop and started with Rutgers University Police in 1973 he was a graduate of the New Jersey State Police Academy. And he worked as a patrolman, detective, and worked there for 13 years. Then he was recruited by Middlesex County Prosecutor's Office. And in Jersey, that's actually a pretty common setup. And most of their crime scene and latent print work is done by the Jersey State Police. And the first time I taught there, I, I, I called them State Patrol. And oh my God, I never heard the end of it. Like you do not call them State Patrol. They, uh, that was particularly annoying to them. But in Minnesota, they're called State Patrol. So, you know, and anyway, but it has a lot to do with function. Our, our state troopers are mostly traffic and law, you know, traffic enforcement, if you will. Whereas they, you know, they're like, actual detectives and investigators not just traffic crimes but actual investigations and they do a lot of the latent print work in the state uh, so then he was recruited by the Middlesex County Prosecutor's Office which is a lot of the forensic work that's done locally is not done by a sheriff's office but by the prosecutor's office so that's actually pretty common in Jersey throughout throughout the state so he was working for Middlesex County and uh, he was a crime scene investigator there, did latent print work and kind of jack of all trades. And he attained rank of sergeant, lieutenant, and became supervisor of the crime scene unit uh, for 17 years. So his first 30 years were, you know, with these two departments uh, in, in the, you know, in police departments effectively. And, you know, as a police officer, as a sworn, sworn patrol officer, uh, right. sorry, sw sworn police. Doing a lot of work on, on, on the crime scene unit. Um, yeah, right. You know, so both involvement on in crime scenes and, and the latent print uh, comparisons. Yeah. And they don't really have civilians doing it there. I mean, all of their crime scene work and latent print work, uh, everybody I know in Jersey that does either are, are uh, sworn officers. So that's just how Jersey is. And, uh, you know, then that would be right around 2000 three or so I, he would have retired and then went private so that's when i met him is when he had just retired so he was very happy when i first met him was just a <laughs> ha happy lucky guy having retired i assume on a nice officer's pension after 30 years in and then you know was able to focus his all of his energy and attention on the IAI and the various groups that he was involved in, the local IAI is New Jersey uh, Crime Scene Certification. He was involved in uh, certification boards. He was involved at, at the parent IAI. He was uh, had both served in the board of directors as well as gone through the different um, sworn positions all the way, you know, vice president four all the way through president. And when he became president in that 2008, 2009 period was when we got hit with the NAS report, which we'll get to in a little bit. So, right. uh, you know, he, um, he retired in that 
time period and then, you know, was able to enjoy a good 15 years of retirement, just focusing on what I think he really loved, which was the IAI and interaction with his fellow professionals. And and he also was doing private work. In fact, the last case I was working on in the last episode, Eric, remember we talked about that crazy case, you know, the knuckle case, but we also talked about the case in Florida a little bit yeah, yeah. where... I, you know, I was down there because one of the agencies didn't have documentation and SOPs. Bob actually had also was the other expert in that case and had written a very similar report and had very similar views as I did. And we didn't talk about it ahead of time, but had views that, no, if you're going to do this work, you have to have SOPs. You should be accredited. But if you're not accredited, then at least have quality assurance. You know, have, um, you know, a documentation of your examinations. Do all the things that swig fast. OSAC, the IAI, have been pushing the profession to do for these years to get better and to, you know, to become a, a, a real science. And, you know, they weren't doing any of that. So Bob had a fairly scathing report as well. Well, and, and didn't he come up also in the um, most dangerous animal of all uh, episode? So he did. That's, you know, yeah. Man, I actually forgot about that, but you're absolutely right. He did come up in that episode because he he was who was contacted by the authors of that book and said – he said, I can't compare this. There's no ridge detail here in this image, and if I was to compare these scars, I'd have to reverse this blood image to which the authors said to him, yeah, we'll go ahead and then reverse it, to which he said, well, I can reverse it. But why would I do that? <laughs> right. And they just said, well, just go ahead and compare it anyway, to which he said, um, okay, it's still inconclusive. There's no ridge detail here. You can't say anything. So uh, here in a minute, we're going to talk about uh, the letter he wrote uh, as president uh, in response to the NES report. And uh, so, you know, we've talked about that in the past. And then you know, these other just kind of random episodes where you know, his, his name keeps popping up, um, I think kind of underlines you know, just his – his presence in the field. Yeah, exactly. There's a reason why his name is on all this stuff. It was important to him. Uh, and, you know, I, uh, <laughs> he sent me all these links of, uh, you know, ahead of the show. And, yeah, you know, I, I went kind of safe with my, uh, with my company name when I, when I started doing private work. Uh, you know, <laughs> Ray, Ray Forensics is, isn't, uh, uh, <laughs> isn't too confusing or too out there uh, as a uh, uh, as a name i love the name he went with where for his company uh, id man forensics id man i know it kind of reminds me of like that would make a great license plate like was his license plate id man sort of like that Kramer episode from Seinfeld who runs into the proctologist whose license plate was Ass Man. Yep. I, I kind of picture Bob as well, he might have been an Ass Man. I don't know, but he was definitely an ID man. That's for sure. Absolutely. Uh, that yeah, I could totally see that uh, that license plate fitting there. But uh, you know, even so, you know, moving even just from license plate to to company name, uh, that's a great name for sure. for a late print examiner going into private Ooh. work. Although yours, dude, really should be Exclusion Man. You know what? I was actually even thinking of that. I'm like, well, you know, there are other conclusions that are important. <laughs> I I don't know. I, I think uh, ex- exclusion man you know, might make me uh, – you might paint me as a little bit too much of an introvert. Uh, <laughs> or someone illiterate might think it's execution man. <laughs> yeah, you don't want that. You don't want that. Um, 
Um, it doesn't quite have the same ring to it either. Uh, nah, it does ID man. All right. So you, I mean, you mentioned some of the stuff he was involved with, you know, obviously president, but also part of Swigfast, uh, on the, uh, NIS, um, uh, human factors, uh, group, you know, yeah, very much he involved was, with he, and, uh, New Jersey, you know, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. He was great on the human factors committee there. Because the Human Factors Committee was made up of so many disparate groups. I mean, on the one end, you have really academic-y people. You know, you had Jennifer Manukin and David Kay and, uh, for a while, Jay Kohler and uh, ETL Drawer and, you know, sort of this one group pushing this one direction with the bias, 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 all, you know, all the issues, you know, there. And then you have this other group of practitioners that were kind of old school, and like, well, it's you know, and it's not that bad, and well, had had very differing points. Bob was great because he, I I think he just wanted to get it over with quickly. He was very much a, pra- a pragmatist, and if I know Bob, I think he just wanted to get to that bar and hang out and just relax. So he was like, all right, let's get a solution here. Let's get my, so you're saying this, you're saying this. How, how about this? And he throws something up. And try to try to get it up there now he wouldn't type it he would stand up and sort of almost like a foghorn leghorn kind of thing get up in front of the crowd and just all right let's try this so he would just start saying some words and someone would start typing and then you get some words up there but he was that the catalyst he was the guy that like let's get something up here let's start with this and then come on let's move this along a little bit and I, I love that about him and i know um i never sat on the board of directors of the ii but i know bob was also a real leader in the let's let's move this along we have debated this over and over and over and the one thing i loved about him he had no problem teasing some of the most respected people in the field you know the ron smiths and steve meagers and some of those he had no problem just kind of calling them out you know and saying all right if we let you go we'll be here till dinner time so let's wrap this up he was very much an efficient pragmatist when it came to these committees and i, I really love that about I him definitely appreciate that in, in involvement in all sorts of different committees for sure all right, so let's let's then talk about the uh, the 2009 letter uh, in re- in yeah. response to the uh, the NAS report. Yeah, bold, bold, bold move. Oh well, yeah, you're telling me. <laughs> Boy, we could we could use a letter like this from the IAI now, um, but uh, <laughs> it it came out. I mean, I mean this was just. Day just after. days, day after. Okay, I was going to say the it was, day it was after. The day after. I, I... The that that's what is so amazing was. I think he had this locked and loaded because this came out the day after the NAS report dropped. It's it's again, it's incredible that it would it was released that quickly, but also I think really important for the field and important in the direction that the field has taken since then with such you know decisive action. You know, the NAS um, report, people kind of forget that it originated from forensic examiners asking for help, asking for funding. Uh, This this wasn't, this didn't come about from critics criticizing the field. And then this report is generated. It came from forensic practitioners asking for help, asking for funding, uh, you know, asking, we need to. Uh, improve, but we need funds to do it. Yep. What the NAS report kind of turned into 
was much more of a criticism uh, of the field. This was, I think, just such a great response from the AI uh, to to everything that came out there, highlighting the points that they made, not just saying, eh, you don't know what you're talking about, we're just going to ignore you know, all this, but identifying some of the points that they made as as important and things that needed to change, uh, and then instituting that change you know, basically immediately. So one thing that I think is interesting about it is, you know, you mentioned this, um, you know, quick turnaround time too. It came out, you know, right after. That's pretty impressive. But I actually asked him about this one time again, hanging out at the bar. It's like, Bob, how in the hell did you get that letter through the IAI so quickly? Because, I mean, I, I mean, everything moves at a snail pace, you know, through the eye is my understanding. How did that happen? He's like, oh, I just wrote it. I'm the president. And and I said, what? <laughs> he said, well, I'm the president. So this is and he, you know this is something that maybe people didn't realize. I mean, if you look at it, it's a memo. It's a memo to the membership. It's basically he didn't say it was a newsletter, but he basically said, look, this is a memo coming from the president. I can do that. I can write a memo. This isn't necessarily the IAI's official position. This is me, the president, as a representative of the IAI, saying this now. He hoped people would interpret it that way, but that sort of was a very clever little skirting around things that basically said, you know, hey, as the president, this is what I'm saying. And it's a very strong message, but it was also a clever way to get that out there. I don't know if we've ever discussed that little distinction, but that was something that he had shared with me. Well, again, that totally makes sense. That, But it also helped kickstart you know, the direction that the field took. Uh, yes. And you know, what was uh, later codified, you know, by, by so much of the field very quickly after that. Right. Yeah, I mean, the the things that, you know, he says in here are sort of factual. For example, you know, the IAI endorses accreditation. Yeah, okay, yeah you know, he didn't need the IAI's official permission to restate the obvious there. And, you know, it says that the IAI does not at this time endorse the use of probabilistic models, which is also, you know, a statement of fact at the time. But then he adds little things like, and this is, this was his part in this, members are advised to avoid stating their conclusions in absolute terms when dealing with population issues, such as to the exclusion of all others, effectively. Or members um, should not, you know, it's suggested that members not assert 100% infallibility. So it was kind of a clever way to wrap this up through the II, again, as its representative president, but not have to go through what would have been months and months and months of probably debate to get the official position out from the IAI. And, and I think it was so timely to come out the day after. It really did send a message that while this report is very critical of our field, it's not wrong when it comes to the overall suggestions and the overall, especially the recommendations. That report, you know, I've said it on this on this show before, I agree with all 13 recommendations. The recommendations are fine. I mean, the recommendations make sense. It's when they di dug in a little bit into their commentary on the different disciplines, I think they went a little bit farther than they needed to. It's outside their scope, but uh, the recommendations are great, and I can completely see why the IAI would support those recommendations. Uh, exactly, and I think it really helped frame the NES report for a lot of examiners. Right when it initially yeah. drops, all of a sudden there's just like, "Oh my! Can you believe this? Can you believe that?" You know, 
like, oh, this is terrible. This is terrible. And then, you know, right away, just the next day, there, there's this letter that helps contextualize it all. Um, yeah. that, like you're saying, that's like, um, that, that clearly, you know, puts down some, some points that there's, there's no research suggesting that we can't do this accurately. Uh, there's, there's no research that, you know, the underlying principles, uh, are, are incorrect that, you know, basically our, our, our field is, is strong, uh, but that, uh, this, you know, this, this criticism about you know, testifying to being a hundred percent, uh, or zero percent error rate, whichever way you want to look at it, isn't appropriate and you yeah. should stop doing it because it's a fair criticism. So let's, yeah. let's, let's stand by what, you know, is what, you know, is solid. Let's recognize a fair criticism, you know, coming from this, uh, this paper and let's, let's act on it and, uh, and improve ourselves. Uh, and yeah. th- that again, set just the stage for what's come since then. Yeah, and my, my recollection of this, too, and I don't remember if it was around this time or maybe it was after. I think I had said something to him like once, you know, something because I, I had always praised him for this letter. I always told him how impressed I was. It was so I mean, for years, I would just I was so impressed with his action on this. So I know it had come up, but at some point I said, yeah, probably the only downside to the letter is you say don't say these things. But you, of course, didn't tell them what they could say. And I think that was probably this, you know, a little bit of chaos of, well, if we can't say that, what are we supposed to say? And I remember him saying, well, Glenn, that's why we immediately, and he's right, in the next meeting that we had at SwigFast, we started working on the articulation document, which we've made fun of on the show for its crazy name. But I was on that committee, and (laughs) I remember Bob taking a personal interest in that particular document because it was meant to basically be what is it that we can say if we can't say these things and let's get something out there that we can say and is supportable and that's what that document always was meant to be was all right we admit the errors of our ways we said these things in the past but no more we're growing up here are the things that we can support with research and and you know science and i remember it was me and Heidi and Cedric and Stoney, you know, I'd say some of the, you know, looking at, you know, especially Cedric and Stoney, some of the more academic people, you know, involved in the IEI, trying to really work out that language. And even Kristoff sat in on at least a couple of those uh, meetings. So it, it really was meant to be from an academic standpoint of research. What can we say? And that right. um, it just it just took a while. But I, I think Bob appreciated that's why that document was so important. And he had such an interest in it. And, you know, it's 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 fairly timely just to this topic overall, especially as it relates to um, you know, here. It's more of the the zero percent error rate. But uh, that especially in the articulation document very much got closely linked with you know the other thing that you don't say. Uh, which is exclusion of all others. Uh, so an ID means that you can exclude everyone else uh, on the planet. Um, and uh, unfortunately, that while that's you know definitely the the majority uh, of examiners uh, you know quickly adapted that as as part of their their regular testimony. Uh, that, that's not everyone across the board. And uh, you know recently uh, the ASB. Uh, friction ridge fingerprint group 
um, has uh, begun accepting other publications besides from OSAC. Uh, and one of those um, outside um, publications uh, may actually include uh, wording to the effect it's of exclusion of all others. And because it's not run, you know, the, the chair of that uh, ASB group isn't an actual practitioner, I, I don't think they understand the the history here and, and how we're leaving this all behind but you know that's uh, again unfortunately this this uh, this ugly head coming back rearing back up uh and is it's going to be considered i can't believe this for a standard yeah right yeah crazy crazy times crazy times well at least at least bob was first there in the front line saying all right guys stop saying this exactly yeah. And uh, um, and and here's hoping that that um, you know current and future IAI presidents uh, can take a bit of inspiration from uh, from Bob uh, on this and keep the discipline moving in the right direction uh, as he did. Indeed. So one of the uh, the again same year <laughs> he was still president. Uh, there was a, a review of the Shirley McKee case, uh, yes. that he was uh, pretty instrumental in. Um, yes. so boy, we haven't talked about the Shirley McKee case in a little while. So why don't you give a, a short refresher summary of, of Shirley McKee, uh, to our listeners. Wow. Okay. <laughs> the short uh, version. <laughs> 1997, a woman by the name of Marion Ross was murdered in her home in Scotland. Uh, a crime scene police showed up and for my understanding was several weeks held the home and processed the home. Uh, while that time was ongoing an investigation, uh, they developed hundreds of finger marks from the crime scene. And as normal practice, of course, they will compare uh, that to the victim, anyone who's known to have been in the home, but they also at that time would compare them to police officers. That was actually standard practice to compare them to the police. Uh, you know, whether or not some of them may not have been wearing gloves while inside the home and, and so on. And, you know, this is a DNA era, but not exactly, you know, not in the, the, the full height of DNA era. So it wasn't uncommon for people to not wear gloves while at the scene. And so they would routinely find police officer prints, you know, at the scene. So they had identified one of the uh, impressions to a woman who was on the Scottish police force by the name of Shirley McKee. And uh, eventually they went to her and said, you know, we found your, your fingerprint in the home. And she said, that's impossible. I never went in the home. She had gone to the scene to drop something off, but they never gone in there. She was not on any log. No one remembered her ever entering the scene she denied ever being in there and when this case had come up for trial once they had developed a suspect uh, she at that time during a trial said i never went in there and after the trial she was arrested for perjury because clearly they found her fingerprint in the home so she must have gone in there uh, her environment was so toxic not only did they arrest her in front of her colleagues but at some point, a nasty rumor got started that, okay, she didn't go during the, the light of day. She went off hours, and actually, she they, the rumor was just terrible. They said that she enjoyed having sex at crime scenes, particularly homicide scenes, and that she must have had sex over the body uh, with the guy who was on guard, uh, keeping track of the log, and accused her of having an affair and all this. And it was just horrible 
But that that's how they explained her fingerprint being there, which in reality, when Pat Wernheim eventually got involved and looked at it, said, no, um, this is not her fingerprint. This is an erroneous identification. So, so there yeah. you go. That's my three-minute summary. And then um, Bob Garrett being involved in here, starting up a committee called the IAI Y7 Committee uh, to review this. So um, right. Y7 being the the name of the latent print that was identified to Shirley McKee, but was disputed in Scotland, four examiners identified it because that was their normal process. So four had ID'd it. Then when she was called on on it, she hired her own experts, John Barry and Peter Swan, uh, her own experts who um, effectively looked at it and agreed with the Scottish police. So there were six people on the Scottish side, and then you had Pat Wertheim eventually look at it out of a total coincidence, got involved, and he and Dave Grieve said, no, this is an erroneous identification. And then once that got passed around to the community through Casey Wertheim and Ed German, you had hundreds of examiners that looked at this and all agreed this was not an identification. So, and the and the Scottish police never, never admitted to a mistake. So this right. went on for ten yeah. years at least of dispute, if, if not more. At least, right? Yeah. So again, this is in two thousand nine that this committee is is happening. You know, all the the trial of the the first event in ninety seven, and I think McKee's trial for perjury in ninety nine, ninety eight or ninety nine. Yeah. yeah, I. I think everything got settled out, like lawsuits and everything, in 2005, but she still wanted an apology from them and an right. admittance of error. And so, yeah, this was 2009 that it was still ongoing. And, you know, Bob never had to get involved in this. He didn't have to. He could have taken offense and go, oh, I've let them work it out. Why, why do we need to get involved in this? And think about it. I mean, most UK examiners aren't IAI members. This right. wasn't necessarily destroying our membership um it was certainly destroying the fingerprint society uh, i was ripping them apart uh, many of the head people of the fingerprint society were um ident- believed that it was a proper identification whereas many of the rank and file of the fingerprint society were leaving because they thought it was a joke that they wouldn't accept it so it was definitely having an impact on them but bob didn't have to get involved i mean that's the kind of person he was he wanted to take a stand and you know it was it was a man it was a big issue at the time um uh, it was it was on the level of the brandon mayfield case uh it was these two oh, I, worse i'd say worse because it, i mean I, I mean because they because they couldn't resolve it because right with mayfield it, they it eventually so identified toxic. the actual guy yes. yeah yeah, I mean, if you went back to the CLPEX postings and found those from that time, <laughs> oh, I'm actually looking at some of them right now. They were incredibly toxic and angry, and people were using anonymous names and uh, just calling each other out and saying the worst things about people. Many of them, again, either unfounded, not true, terrible accusations about you know Shirley McKee or character Pat Wertheim and his character. It's it was incredible. It it had morphed away from the fingerprint into an entire realm of nonsense that had nothing to do with the fingerprint at all. Right. Yeah, you know what, what, I'm not sure your opinion on this, but but my opinion's always been that the the reason this happened in the first place is that you have your these stack of latents and you have a stack of known prints, all these possible mm-hmm. suspects and 
you know, officers, crime scene people, everyone who may have been in this crime scene. And this is this two huge stacks. You have to compare each latent against each of these people. And you yes. just, uh, so you look at the latent, pops out pretty quick. There's four points that, you know, that are, yep. you know, no, there that are. anyone looking four at that right in a row there. would pick yep. as, as your target group. So you t- look at those four, you start going through the cards. And then all of a sudden you get to Shirley McKee's uh, card, and then there's four points you know, relatively in roughly the same uh, position. You believe that she was actually in the home because she was part of that stack, although she never went in the home. But, you know, again, you've got the whole rest of the pile of latent prints to go, right? Yeah. Boom. That's it. In the done pile. And then you just keep going. And at that moment, it was just this, it wasn't a huge involved comparison. It was just boom, boom. Okay, good. You know, there you go. And and then that morphed into really kind of justifying the identification. And again, it wasn't it wasn't to a suspect. It wasn't like a regular ID. It was an elimination right. ID. Uh, right. And without that kind of normal mindset, then it, it, it became a decision. And then it became a decision you had to defend. And, yeah. uh, it, it, uh, you couldn't say that you were wrong. You couldn't come back, uh, and, and reevaluate it at that point. Yeah. I mean, if you admitted that you were wrong, you were losing your job. If you stood your ground and everyone else said it wasn't, you're probably still going to lose your job, which in the end, that's exactly what happened. But, you know, they, at least in this way, they argued that they were being wrongfully dismissed and the Scottish examiners were going to sue, you know, SCRO and, and all this, their employer. So, you know, because of that culture at the time, there was simply no benefit to admitting any weakness or error. There was simply no advantage other than, you know, accepting that you had made a mistake, which they, it, and I think it was hard for some of them, considering that, you know, Peter Swan and John Barry were considered two of the most elite, well-known examiners in the UK, British English fingerprint examiners, over 35 years of experience, if not 40 years of experience, and just sort of, you know, mastheads of the profession, and they were agreeing with them. And then you had Pat Wertheim, you know, coming from the U.S., you know, this cowboy, cowboy person, <laughs> you know, personality, saying, oh, no, this, this isn't it, but... I mean, anyone who's ever looked at that it can't fathom how they were able to... Oh, yeah, and then we forgot Ari Zalenberg, head of the Dutch lab, who got involved and yep. said, no, no, there's no way this can be... And then this also, can't be explained by this distortion. And then the ex- explanations of the seven taps, the seven touches, uh, that that would explain... Oh, I remember three, but it, were there, oh. there could have been seven. It was so crazy. I remember three for th- three different movements is what was described, yes. Uh, it was It was crazy. So one thing we've actually never discussed, and I don't bring it up too often because it's probably a little sensitive topic, but I'm not going to say who told me, but a very well-known English fingerprint examiner mentioned to me once, very offhandedly, said, well, you know, another reason that might have been, of course, is because of performance uh, rates and, uh, you know, annual rises, raises that examiners get in the UK. Like, what are you talking about? Oh, yeah, I mean, it's well known in the UK that examiners have effectively a quota. I mean, their performance is based on the number of identifications that they make per year. 
And I'm looking him at him rather astoundedly going, wait, hold on. And he said, yeah, I mean, every year, you know, they look at how many IDs you made last year and you're kind of expected to make a certain number of IDs. And if you don't, I mean, that can be an issue for your performance. And, you know, I, I probably should have questioned him more about, well, you know, do they not get a raise or they get less of a raise? But I was, I think, so astounded. And he mentioned this at, actually at a conference, too, in Canada. And a number of us went up to him afterwards and were like, hey, um, what, that what? actually seems like a huge source of potential bias. In what world does that make sense? Because imagine you're on, oh, let's say ID 199 for the year and you need to get to 200. And you're looking at Shirley McKee's and it looks that close enough. And you can eliminate this. No harm, no foul, so to speak, other than if it was the perpetrator's actual print, you've now, you know. That could be big, but they legitimately oh. thought it was hers. And I was like, how is this not being brought up every single time this case is being talked about? How is this not considered the primary source of bias in this case? And, you know, the examiner just said, well, you know, we're doing some research on this right now. And there are actually there is an article that mentions this Dave Charlton's article that talked about motivations of examiners and performance um, quotas is one of the things in that article. So I don't think they're still doing it today. I think this was probably a practice more 20 years ago, but it would have been in place in Scotland. And again, I can't see how this isn't being talked about more often. But anyway, it, well, it's just kind of lost lore yeah. that I never really was discussed. I mean, I, I I can see, you know, performance like a check or some sort of evaluation, maybe on like the number of cases that you've gone through or, or other other metrics of your work uh that you're expected to meet um number of ids but not friend. but not ids because again you as the examiner you can't control that you, you just may be assigned uh, well or or can't or you, can you right? <laughs> and and that would be the way right is if if you get right. in uh you know a dozen cases in a row where there are just no ids to to and, to the suspect well, and and I think the effect here is imagine all these marginal marks that you're not going to do anything with. You know you can't get to the 16-point standard to take the court. Yep. But you might be able to – God, they, have a, they had a term for it. Um, I'll, I'll have to think of it. There's like matching up or something. They had a – basically matching out or basically matching up the unidentified latent prints. There was a term, a slang term they had for it, which was basically uh, – Getting to to zero, like getting them all assigned to people. Right, and you, just, you match up the latent to the officer that was at the scene. Boom, it's an ID. No one cares because it's it's just an ID to the officer. Uh, exactly. But in this, yeah, and yeah. I, if that if that was actual practice, again, I, you know, I I know I'm kind of going off of pretty thin. I was told once by so-and-so who mentioned at a conference publicly about this, and it was mentioned briefly in this one research article. But I, I'm surprised it wasn't really talked about more and raised more eyebrows. Right. And again, getting it back to, to Bob, this was a huge uh, kind of black eye on the field, I think. And yeah. and and he wanted to to do what he could to provide resolution uh, to this issue. Um, you know, in the end, uh, the, his, the report came out from the committee that uh, that he helped get going, uh, basically stating that this is not an accurate identification. 
I don't think it changed anyone's mind on either side. Right. Or really solved that issue overall that that Scotland and, and the United Kingdom was facing at the time. Uh, but, you know, he saw this this issue. He saw this ongoing thing that had been going on for over a decade by the time he had taken over as the II president. Right. And he wanted to step, uh, take a step forward and, you know, do what he could uh, to resolve it and, uh, you know, come forward and with the power or the kind of the, the mass of the II behind him say, uh, this is this is how it is for this comparison. It is absolutely not an identification. Yeah, and, you know, in the official inquiry that happened in Scotland, and that was in 2009, in the summer of 2009, it was mentioned that the IAI had reached this conclusion. Now, uh, when Bob first brought it up in what was Identification News, I think he brought it up, but he said that there was going to be a forthcoming article in the Journal of Forensic Identification. It would take them a while to write it up. I checked. They never did write it up. So it, there's no official that I found, uh, like, publication on it that had gone through a journal process. But I don't know whatever happened to it. And obviously, I forgot about it and never thought to ask him in the meantime. But it doesn't look like there was ever officially a released report coming from that committee. Not that was publicly disclosed. Right. All right. So real quick, let's just touch on uh, one more thing that he did in his year as uh, as president. <laughs> and uh, uh, and that was the report of the International Association for Identification Standardization 2 Committee. Yes, I was on that. So uh, this, this dates back to the initial you know, standardization 2. This is... Dating back to the initial standardization committee dates all the way back to uh, 1973 uh, report from the IAI. Uh, basically yes. said that the there was a there was a, a um, an attempt to standardize. All right, what's the point threshold that all latent print examiners should use? And the result of the 1973 standardization committee was that there's there's no there's no logical basis to have a predetermined point standard for an identification conclusion. Uh, we've talked in the past all the different reasons for that. Uh, you know, different points have different um, different value as to how uh, discriminating they are. Uh, the quality of each of the points can then adjust that further. So you can't really predetermine what's the number of points that you need. And that was that that decision. Basically, then setting up North America as this uh, as this zone of more of a holistic approach, looking at all of the features that you compare, and not needing to reach a predetermined point standard, which was much more common in say Europe. Yeah. Um, can I can I give you a little bit of um, some stories and oh, some history yeah, on that too? All right. So for one thing, when you first heard about this, I'm sure you heard about this when you came into the profession. How did you hear that three year period? How was that characterized to you? What did you hear about that three year period? What, what, Wondering what, if you had the same the same phrase that 70 to 73 period or 71 to 73. Um, I, geez, I mean, no one at my agency dated back that far. Uh, I think so that, no no one told you how to testify or how to use that in a statement of testimony. Oh well, I mean it, it was it not um, it was it was just the that there's basically what it says that, you know in the report that there's no there's no valid okay. basis for having requiring a predetermined number of minutia. 
Okay. There's, so there's no when book I, standard. When, when I had come in, I was told the following phrase, and I think some listeners will laugh when they hear this. Following an intensive three-year study, the IAI concluded that, and then blah, there was no scientific basis for a minimum, you know, predetermined minimum number of points. But that was the phrase that would keep coming up was a three, an intensive three-year study. Oh, I never Three heard years that. of study. Okay. I was just wondering if that had come up in yours. It and most definitely came up in mine. Just pointing out something that, that struck me there is that the scientific basis you know, originally back in the seventies, it was no valid basis, and then I believe it was in the nineties in the Narum um, yep. uh, paper, which is, yep. but just basically a bunch of latent print examiners were in Israel, and they said, "Hey, let's uh, re- revamp this," and added that word "scientific basis" instead of "valid basis." Yeah, and that was Pierre Margot and Christoph Shampo mostly with Dave Grieve and Pat Wertheim and Ed German uh, mostly yeah, what a, leading what, that. What a crowd at the bar. <laughs> Indeed. You know what I mean? Indeed. Yeah, for sure. So, right. So it was this three-year study, and you're absolutely right. Valid was the term. But what I was shocked about when I when I joined the 2010 Standardization 2 Committee, we had Andre Moensons, who was just this wealth of information. And, you know, we started looking at all the documents. I guess there were, were some documents called the HESS reports, H-E-S-S, HESS. I might actually have those on the Holy Grail disc. But they describe some of the, the findings of, of that time and what they were finding out. And having read those and talked to Andre and others from back around that time, it was pretty clear it was not a study. I mean, in any <laughs> shape or form of a study, it was basically a bunch of old white guys on the II calling other old white guys in other countries going, hey, what's your point standard? How many points do you use? Uh, 12. Uh, why? We don't know. It's, that's what we got. All right, thanks. Or they were writing letters, typing letters to them going, hey, we were wondering what you... And so, you know, it really was highly dependent on who you contacted because obviously, you know, if someone – who would you contact in the U.S., right? The FBI. But would that represent all agencies in the oh, U.S.? Boy. You know, or in France, you know, who, where would you contact? Would that represent all the municipalities and what's going on in Paris versus Lyon? I mean it was kind of – it was really highly dependent on who do we know? Oh, let's write him a letter or literally they would call a long-distance phone call and give him a call and talk to him for five minutes Kind of catch up and go, what do you guys do? And some of the, I don't know if they were transcripts per se, but there was lots of summaries of these phone calls, but they were just a bunch of phone calls. People got, people getting on the phone or writing letters to other countries going, what do you use and why? So I thought that was pretty funny, um, after seeing what was the intensive three year study. Not that it didn't have value, but it was characterized to me as a study, which that's what I laughed about. The other thing that Andre pointed out that I thought was really interesting is what's the name of the committee? The this of the new one, the standardization two committee. Both of them. It's standardization, right? Yeah. Yep. And so it's tempting to think that it was about well, is there a universal standard for for numbers of you know numbers of minutia that True. are needed that. That actually wasn't the initial purpose or the main purpose. The main purpose, according to at least Andre, was no, no, the initial, and this is actually true in standardization too, you see it right there, was can we standardize terminology? 
uh, for within the field, and particularly what we call features. Is there a way to standardize these terms? Are there standard terms available? And can we then, once we standardize that, can we then standardize how they are used and how many are needed? But it was kind of a two-fold process where the first thing was, and initially the group in the 70s was about seeing if they could standardize the language of those terms. And I thought, oh, that that's kind of missed. I, I think people don't know that part of it. But um, you can read the HESS reports and some of the other stuff. And, and even in the mission of the Standardization 2 2010 report, we do talk about that a little bit and how progress through SWIGFAST has attempted to you know standardize that terminology quite a bit in the field. The, the other thing about the 2010 standardization that was pretty cool, and given you had Bob Garrett, Ron Smith, Joe Polsky, uh, if I rack my brain, I could probably think of a few other, just kind of the old school, old guard, you know, the guys who have been around for a long time. Um, we were exploring probabilistic approaches and whether or not that would be an appropriate way to go. And it was the Standardization 2 Committee in 2010 that began to open that door for prob- probabilities in the IAI. And I remember uh, some of the holdouts initially were like, mm, I don't know about this. But after they saw presentations from Paul Chamberlain and Christoph Shampo, they started going, hold on, this sounds like this is a tool that would support our examinations, not right. replace our right. conclusions. I mean, that was the first thing they took away from that was, wait a second, you're not necessarily saying we can't even say, in fact, you're even possibly saying we could still say ID, but these numbers would support the conclusion, not replace them. And I said, well, I mean, that's for debate, but yes, that's these are tools to enhance and support your examinations. That was a eye-opening moment for them where many of them got on board if they went, I kind of like this idea. I mean, I could see how this would be valuable. It would take a lot of questions away when I'm being grilled on the stand about how the, how do you know this and where are your data for that? Well, and that, you know, uh, number six here on this uh, on this resolution uh, is the creation of a standing committee on probability theory and statistics. And yes. uh, it was, a, a you know, a couple that got started up. And then a couple of years yep. later, uh, you know, I, I joined that that standing committee and then a couple of years later I chaired that standing committee and, right. um, uh, and then ended up, you know, getting through another resolution passed, um, by the skin of our teeth, but, uh, passed to further clarify these positions. You know, by that time it was again, moving a little bit way away from the, this initial emphasis of, you know, is there a point standard that, uh, that we need to establish and the conclusion being no, you, you can't predetermine that. Uh, but more into that, um, you know, kind of what's needed for probability modeling and what examiners and agencies should be looking for in potential upcoming models that may be released, uh, before implementing, using, and then testifying to it. Right. Yeah. A, a lot of that initial convincing some of the, you know, the, holdout examiners who weren't as exposed to it and didn't understand necessarily probability models. And a lot of that, um, you know, I, I know it came out of our committee. I'm trying to remember if Steve Meager was on that. I feel like he might have been on that committee. Um, and I know that, you know, he he was always 
He would say he's not against it, but he was pretty much against it. <laughs> but he'd say he wasn't. And I think it was nice, you know, having another viewpoint for them to hear and started convincing them. You know, we looked at... um we looked at all the other disciplines, for example, that had other conclusions beyond an identification exclusion. And that was another motivating factor to begin to open up the box of inconclusive. Many of the initial members of the committee were against that, but they were surprised at how we were the only discipline that only had ID exclusion or one giant inconclusive, even at that time, which was, you know heresy so there's a lot of things that came out of that committee that were pushing the envelope and getting uh, some of the the older examiners you know more established examiners on board with that and it was really helpful to have that report exactly i mean this is stuff we've been talking about for the past few years and it keeps coming up with the uh, conclusion standard this this um an association that is not a full identification. Uh, it's, right. it's limited support. It may be strong yeah. or, or very strong or moderate support for uh, this association, but it's not the extremely strong of an identification. And up yeah. until this resolution that, again, you know, a big part of this being due to the work that Bob was doing as president – uh, there were resolutions on the books with the II saying that no examiner is allowed to um, give any testimony to a probable or likely conclusion. Um, right. And this is the resolution that uh, rescinded those and then made way for the um, you know what what eventually came out of that standing committee on probability modeling. I think further than clarified the II's position uh, on examiners testifying or reaching conclusions that were, um, you know, likely or probable, probabilistic in nature, Uh, you know, at least for now being much more of a subjective probability, but then setting the stage for the future uh, with, with that being, you know, worked on from an actual probabilistic model. Yeah. Yep, and it was all just, again, groundbreaking, and Bob was right there in the thick of it yet again. Right. Again, all the same year. <laughs> it's, it, it, right. It, it was, a, it was a, a very productive year for the IAI. And, it was. Um, uh, and, man, set so much the stage for the decade to come. Um, so, uh, anyway, I, I think we've, we've talked through... Uh, the work that uh, that Bob contributed, his legacy with the IAI and the fingerprint discipline. A little discipline. history lesson, too, yeah. for our listeners. Going back in time a bit. So, here's to you, Bob. Um, and, here's to uh, you. Uh, and also to Pete and Julie and Michael. Uh, you will all be missed. Yes, indeed. Thank you, Eric. Uh, that was cathartic. It was nice to talk about them and... Um, now that that felt good. I'm I'm gonna miss Bob a lot, and obviously Michael too. But I I Bob I'd see all the time, several times a year, and I'm really gonna miss hanging out with him at the bar and having a scotch. Absolutely. So let's move into um uh well now that we've left you on a little bit of a downbeat um well hopefully no, not uh, that hopefully a celebration uh, um that's of, right an uh, Irish send off exactly right. Raise your glass. Have a drink. Uh, so let's let's start wrapping things up. Uh, first order of business is the anagram. So 
uh, Glenn, uh, I had given you uh, linen rationing as the uh, as as the the words to unscramble. Were you were you able to handle that throughout the uh, the hour here of uh, our discussion? I did, but I think I got lucky because it was so related to what was on your mind. Uh, I believe it was online training, and that uh, that's that's my answer. Absolutely, that's uh, that's the one. Um, again, between the uh, the uh, the Idemia Users Conference that I'm presenting at, a bunch of stuff here this week. Uh, you know, you doing some some online training here this week. Uh, definitely in the in the, the front of the mind. Um, and boy, next week <laughs> it just doesn't end. I have more stuff to write. Um, I, I'll be I think I'll be delivering a talk for the California Friction Ridge Study Group and then the Chesapeake Bay Division Conference. Uh, mm. So the uh, heavy load. <laughs> well. <laughs> Luckily, you've already got your presentations done probably weeks ago, so that that should be good. <laughs> you, sir, you, sir, are a bad influence on me because I used to be well prepared weeks in advance, and the 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 longer I've known you, the less prepared I seem to be. Uh, part of that is also, and yet, it all comes together. <laughs> it does. It does all come together. Uh, just, just like the A team, I love it when a plan comes together. I, I think I was telling someone else this uh, earlier on. I think seven plus years now of doing this podcast and uh, on occasion, like the knuckle episode last week, you just saying, Hey, here, I got a topic. Uh, let's just go with it. Uh, <laughs> it definitely helps out developing that skill of, um, um, of getting a presentation put together pretty quickly, uh, if not on the fly. But um, <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I you know, definitely got some work to do and, between finishing out this week and, and going into next. But, you know, I love presenting and talking about fingerprints. Uh, you know, if I didn't, I wouldn't be co-hosting a podcast on it for so long. Uh, so uh, definitely looking forward to uh, to both those discussions. Uh, so, yes, online training. And I hope you guys all got that out there, too. Uh, let's see. Uh, our website, wpodcast.com. Or email us, eric at rayforensics.com. Glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. Uh, you can connect to all of the uh, uh, the Twitter and Instagram, all that stuff through uh, through the website. Um, let's see. Uh, the opinions expressed on the show are those of the speaker, not necessarily anyone that they may work with or for. Uh, Glenn, anything else to close us out? Uh, if anyone's interested, I'm doing webinars, and you can check them out at www.evolveforensics.com. Dot com and I've got a new one on bloody impressions which I'm really enjoying it's pretty fun also mm-hmm. conflict resolution bias and uh, discriminating power of fingerprints talking about stats models OSAC conclusions many many more check them out uh, they're they're relatively affordable and uh, I, I I think they're three or four hours of lots of information packed webinars Sounds great, and and every every single time you say um, uh, "bloody impressions," I, I in my mind I just instantly translate it to "bloody impressions." Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> in my absolute worst British accent for for all of our UK listeners, um, but uh, I, I just cannot help it. Anyway, thank you guys all for listening, and talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Stay sane.